This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. For those that are here, welcome. Um, thanks for coming downstairs. For who's ever listening on Facebook or Zoom, also welcome. It's good to have you and... If you're, if you're seeing this before a week from now, uh, please consider joining us again next Friday night. Uh, our own Dick Kyes will be speaking on Where Do Human Rights Come From? That's the title, right, Dick? And, uh, yeah, so it should be quite a stimulating evening. Uh, and it will actually close out our, our winter lecture series. It's the last one. So please feel free to join us. Um, tell your friends. What is it called when you online? You like forward something online or share. share? Share it with your friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it'll be good. Um, yeah. So tonight's lecture is a, the title is a question. The Apostle Paul, a friend of the enslaved, and sometimes here at Labrie there are lectures with questions. In the title, and we make you wait until the very end to to answer the question, or we sometimes just don't answer the question at all. So I'm going to do you a favor and cut right to the chase. Was Paul a friend to the enslaved? Uh, Well, it probably depends on which slave you asked, which slave master you ask. It is a complicated question. So if you ask Onesimus, or Tertius, or Quartus, Three named slaves in Paul's letters, they would probably tell you he's their friend. But I think we also have to be honest that the history of the Christian church has a pretty sad and shameful record on this front. And much of that stems from a particular way of reading Paul's letters as an endorsement of inhumane and evil systems of oppression. So take, for example, uh, a line from Howard Thurman's classic book, on African-American spirituality, Jesus and the Disinherited. And if you don't know who Thurman was, he was a pastor, he was a scholar, he was a civil rights activist, he was a spiritual advisor to Martin Luther King Jr. And in this book, there is a very well-known encounter that he recounts between his grandmother, Nancy Ambrose, and himself. So I have a longer quote to read from this. He says, During much of my boyhood... I was cared for by my grandmother, who was born a slave and lived until the Civil War on a plantation near Madison, Florida. My regular chore was to do all the readings for my grandmother. She could neither read nor write. Two or three times a week, I read the Bible aloud to her. I was deeply impressed by the fact that she was particular about the choice of Scripture. For instance, I might read many of the more devotional psalms, some of Isaiah, the Gospels, again and again, but the Pauline epistles, never, except at long intervals, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. 
My curiosity knew no bounds, but we did not question her about anything. Yet when I was older and halfway through college, I chanced to be spending a few days at home near the end of my summer vacation. With a feeling of temerity, I asked her one day why it was that she would not let me read to her any of the Pauline letters. What she told me, I shall never forget. During the days of slavery, she said, the master's minister would occasionally hold services for the slaves. Always the white minister used as his text something from Paul. At least three or four times a year, he used the text, the text, slaves be obedient to your masters as unto Christ. He would go on to show how it was God's will that we were slaves and how if we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. I promised my maker that if I ever learned to read, if freedom ever came to me, I would not ever read from that part of the Bible. End of quote. And I think countless others probably had similar feelings of distrust, of anger, of suspicion towards Paul. Uh, and if that was how he was taught to them, I don't blame them for feeling those things. I think to adequately deal with the fraught topic of Paul and slavery, there's a lot of things we need to juggle, the nature of early Christianity, Paul's churches, Paul's writing, the nature of slavery in the ancient world, then slavery in the new world, which is different than slavery in the ancient world, how Paul's words were read in the new world, and also just the way that slavery continues in our world today. Um, There's a lot of things we need to sort of consider to adequately deal with that. And I won't be able to cover all of those things tonight, so don't worry. But I do want to be honest and say that I, I really do wish that Paul, and the same could be said for Jesus, or really the whole Bible, said unambiguously, slavery is bad and the institution needs to be overturned. That nestled maybe somewhere in the back of Romans, when he was talking about welcoming one another, he said, by the way, let's, let's burn the institution of slavery down. Let's be done with this thing. And it strikes me as a bit of a disappointment that this isn't there. And I just want to name that, and we'll circle back to it, this sense of disappointment towards the end. Uh, and I just want to put it out there and name it. But that said, I don't primarily want to use our time or your time this evening highlighting things Paul didn't do that perhaps we wish he did. Uh, that could be kind of a fun exercise, maybe for another time. But I want to take a deeper look at what Paul did do in his letters as it relates to slavery. And I want to acknowledge that this will not be a comprehensive account tonight. There's only so much we can cover. Uh, and I want to also just say there's a few passages that are typically kind of grouped under household codes. So the, the passage that Nancy Ambrose had heard preached to her many times is one of those passages. It's probably Ephesians 5. Uh, or Ephesians 6. Um, I'm not going to be looking at those. I'm going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 7, as well as Philemon. But I would be really happy to talk about those other passages as well. I'm hoping to do some future lectures, teaching on this, touching on what the household codes were. But So I won't, direct, I won't directly address that here, but I'd love to talk about it. And I'm also not going to be talking about slavery in the Old Testament. But the same thing goes. If you want to talk about that, we can talk about that as well. But where I am going to go, what I do want to do, 
with the rest of our time is I first want to talk about Paul's theology and the reality on the ground of Paul's churches. I want to then move to consider slavery in the ancient world, then 1 Corinthians 7, then Philemon, have some concluding thoughts. We'll hear from uh, a famous American abolitionist, Frederick Douglass, uh, at the end. And throughout, I just want to point out some helpful resources and books that I've, I've found helpful. Uh, and so really to get into this question of Paul's theology and Paul's churches, I have found to be incredibly helpful uh, a New Testament scholar, a guy named John Barclay. Uh, my colleague Dave has done two lectures on, on uh, Barclay's work. He has this large book, uh, this like 700-page book, Paul and the Gift, that he generously uh, whittled down to a, a, a manageable 130, 140-page book called Paul and the Power of Grace. These are just helpful books, I think, to sort of get in what is Paul driven by? What is Paul about? Uh, and he does, Barclay does this great service to us uh, because he kind of summarizes memorably, I think in a memorable way, what, what drives Paul. This idea of really of grace. Central to Barclay's work is what is grace? How can we understand grace? What did Paul mean by that? And you can see the title of the one book, Paul and the Gift. Barclay works with the fact that the word for grace is the same word as gift uh, in Greek. And so I'm going to read a little bit. Uh, This is a summary of a summary. Uh, And this comes from Barclay's uh, newer book, Paul and the Power of Grace. And I I think it's a helpful way to think about what is Paul doing uh, here. So Barclay says this. Many people in the modern West think of God in something like the way they think of Santa Claus. That is a genial figure whom you address only when you want something. And then you hope he will be kind if he considers you sufficiently good. I have argued in this book, as well as in the bigger book, uh, that the pattern of Paul's gospel is very different. In fact, it is the inverse of this Santa image. Uh, so in Barclay's work, like work, uh, Paul, the, the God of Paul's gospel is like the anti-clause. He is the opposite of Santa Claus. And he says this, according to a well-known Christmas song, Santa Claus is coming to town. It is Santa's task to keep a list of those who do wrong and right, and he will distribute gifts accordingly. In other words, Santa's gifts are conditioned. He gives to those who have been good. Like most responsible givers, he wishes to give only to worthy recipients and finds out who they are. However, once his gifts have been given, there's no resulting relationship, no expression of gratitude, no expectation of a gift in return. Children write requests to Santa, but does anyone ever write him a thank you letter or ask him how he's doing after Christmas? In other words, Santa's gifts are congruous and non-circular. Congruous means kind of they, they, they are given according to who deserves them. And non-circular is they don't require a response. They're given to worthy recipients, but have no strings attached. They fit the moral ideas of modern Western individualism. Paul's message of grace was the opposite. It is incongruous and it is circular. 
The Christ gift was given to the ungodly in the absence of worth. And it was given without regard to any pre-constituted worth given from gender, ethnicity, status, or success. There was no list and no selection determined by who's naughty and who is nice. But it was given in order to transform the human recipients and to establish a permanent relationship. The receipt of this gift is necessarily expressed in gratitude, obedience, and transformed behavior. This grace is free. It's unconditioned. But it's not cheap. Right? There are expectations and obligations to it. Those who have received it are to remain within it and live their lives altered by new habits, new dispositions, and new practices of grace. It's a longer, a longer quote from Barclay, but I, I like this image of giving without regard to status, giving without regard to worth. The unconditioned grace creates new sorts of communities inevitably that cut across all the standard lines of distinction of status that characterize all cultures and especially the culture that Paul found himself in. Barclay goes on and he said, Paul founded and supported communities where there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free nor male or female. This did not mean the abolition of these categories, but it did require the hierarchies of worth conveyed by them were undermined and that every identity was reoriented to the superior worth of knowing Christ. And these new communities that grace makes, that the gift creates, that cut across boundaries of status and distinction and worth, the the way that Paul wants to describe these communities the most, his most used term, I think his favorite term, is not church, is not people of God, it's not fellowship, it's not body, it's brothers and sisters. This gift creates a new siblingship, which my spelling program tells me isn't a real word because it always underlines it in red. And these communities of brothers and sisters, again, come from all sorts of social statuses. And in Paul's day, they were a tiny minority. It's reasonable to think that each group that was receiving a letter from Paul was somewhere around a hundred people. So somewhere around a hundred members of each church. And among this small minority of Christians, we know there were both slaves and slaveholders. One of the ways we know this is because it was common practice for slaves to receive a new name when they were purchased by a slave master, a deeply impersonal name when they were purchased. So Onesimus, who's in Philemon, his name is, is useful. His name is Handy. Uh, yeah, uh, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright translates it as Mr. Handy. Uh, and in Romans 16, we come across a Tertius and a Quartus uh, in Romans 16, which is this list of greetings of name characters. Uh, and Tertius and Quartus literally mean third and fourth. Scholars see the only plausible explanation for these names is that they were slaves. These are not the names that parents give their children. Uh, and it's really interesting. Uh, it's food for thought. Uh, Tertius and Quartus are part of Paul's inner circle of friends in Chantria that are with him as he's composing this letter. These are deep associates of Paul. And it's conceivable that they were friends with Paul. 
so that, that's sort of just food for thought. Uh, but these churches lived in a time, they, they existed in a time and place, these brothers and sisters, where changing laws or challenging laws was next to impossible. It was unthinkable, really. So if I want to do something politically, let's say I want to ban people from wearing green felt hats. I think green felt, green felt hats are inappropriate and they should be banned. I can gather signatures. And then I can go to Kathleen Clark's website. I can contact her directly and say the people want the law changed. And she actually, on her website, invites my feedback, invites the constituents uh, that she serves. She wants their feedback. And it's conceivable that if there's enough of a movement against green felt hats, we could convince her to take this to Congress. She could rally other congressmen and women, and we could change the law. There was nothing like this available in the ancient world. This is a privilege that we have in a democratic society. Of course, it's a a fragile privilege in many ways, but it's not one that most of history knew, and it is not one that Paul and his fellow brothers and sisters knew. And so it is thinking, it's worth thinking, considering my disappointment that Paul doesn't outright call for the abolition of slavery, um, I think in some ways is evidence of the fact that I just come from a very different world. My colleague Dick, who's speaking next week, has a helpful lecture on slavery in the Bible. And he says, for the early churches to call for the abolition of slavery would be sort of similar to us in this room gathering together and telling the world they need to stop using computers. No more computers. No one would take it seriously. No one could follow through. And if we actually do care about slavery, modern-day slavery, we really should consider where our computers come from, what sort of conditions the people who make our computers uh, live and work in. Um, But that's also for another time. Um, So I want to move now to speaking about slavery in the ancient world. And a great resource on this is a commentary by Scott McKnight on the letter to Philemon. He spends... Over 50 pages just walking through uh, what slavery in the ancient world was like. And central to it was was an order. Uh, Who one was and what one was able to do was really determined by their location on the social ladder. And this comes from another historian, a a woman named Sandra Joshel, which sort of sounds like my name, Josh Joshel. Anyway. Uh, But slavery in the ancient world was, of course, about work and labor. But who became a slave was not connected to race, but in many ways, social location. And as you can see, slaves are at the very, very bottom. Uh, It carried a profound sense of low status, if not no status. Slaves could be born into slavery or they were made slaves through uh, being captives in war. Slaves were considered morally, spiritually, and ontologically inferior. Uh, And here's a, a quote that kind of gives a taste of that. This is from Plato. He says, The soul of a slave has no soundness in it, and a sensible man should never trust that class at all. Slavery, though, was how things got done in the ancient world, just like... It, things get done today as well. Cheap labor or free labor. 
Aristotle summed up the mindset saying that households require tools and some of the tools are lifeless and some of the tools are living. A slave was property and a human being belonging by nature not to himself but to someone else. And these living tools, which is a terrible way to describe an image of God, had no legal status in the empire. So adult male slaves throughout the entirety of their life were always classified as boys. They were never legally classified as men. And part of this then meant they weren't allowed to get married legally. There was sort of a a pseudo-marriage ceremony that they were allowed to go through, but it had no sort of legal recognition. They could not receive inheritance. Their children would not belong to them, but to their master. And their testimony could not be accepted in court, except if it was came through torture. If they were tortured, then their testimony was believable. Otherwise, it was not to be trusted. Slaves were not welcome in many normal activities that other citizens regularly did. They could not participate in any funeral procession, nor could they ever become soldiers. Throughout ancient literature, the common sentiment towards slaves is disdain or unconcern. So in a book on Roman and Greek slavery, Thomas Weedman, who's a historian, writes, and it's important, slavery is a state of absolute subjection. The slave has no kin. His identity is imposed by his owner who gives him his name. So not only did masters provide slaves with a name, they provided the necessities of life, food, clothing, shelter, though shelter was sometimes just a small cell. Uh, And the bodies of slaves were put to work. They were exploited and abused. It was commonplace for them to be branded or shackled, to perhaps have a hand cut off or a leg broken. They were castrated, iron collars could be imposed on them, and the sexual abuse of slaves was incredibly common, and slaves had no legal recourse to put an end to a very common practice. There is a book by a historian that is quite sobering called From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity by a guy named Kyle Harper, and he talks about the various sexual economies of the ancient world. And in the Roman world, especially for slaves, um, there was nothing they could do. They had no recourse to stop their master's whims or desires. Uh, and it, it was, a free man could, could rape a woman, uh, slave or a young boy slave. And it's not even considered fornication. It doesn't, it doesn't, what you do with a slave doesn't really matter. Uh, and, Orators spoke about it in incredibly crude ways, about sticking it to to, to the slave, uh, all sorts of terrible things. Harper's work is is hard to read in many ways, but it shows the moral transformation that happened as Christian communities took root in the ancient world. Uh, but this sort of reality, of course, left slaves with few options. One, of course, is to escape and to flee. We sometimes call this the runaway slave. I don't really like the ring of a runaway slave, personally, because um, it does feel that it somehow subtly reinforces that they belonged to the master and they've run away from where they, they should be. I just think something about that's not right. But if, if, if a slave did escape, 
um, the the owners, the owner, the slave master would just assume that all the other slaves knew about this potential escape, and they were all punished for it. Uh, they all were responsible for the action. The other option would be manumission, which is a legal action to free slaves. And to my mind, this sounds like it would have been a great, a great thing. But from what I've read, it was far from easy, and life after being manumitted was not straightforward. In fact, it could have been more difficult. A slave could have become a free person, but that was not the same thing as becoming a citizen. If we kind of go back to the um, to this, you have freeborn citizens, then free slave citizens, slaves. So you move up, but you're still not you're still not quite there. Um, and sometimes status would change for the better, but quality of life would be worse. There's just not a simple, fixed binary of free citizen and slave. When a slave was manumitted, and it's not all on this uh, chart here, it wasn't a direct move to the status of citizen. There was a myriad of slave classifications. From what I'm sort of fuzzy on exactly how it worked in each part of the empire, it seemed like there was some uh, some difference depending on where you were. Uh, but a free person would be classified as either born free, a citizen, or, or, or manumitted into freedom. And when a slave would be freed, there were three classifications for them. So again, it doesn't just go from enslaved to free citizen. You could become, uh, they could eventually work up to Roman citizenship. This is not a very common thing. And even after they were, uh, after they got there, they were looked on with great suspicion. They were then, or they could be freed into a status that's called Junian Latins. These are citizens of sorts. They can't receive a will or inherit anything, uh, but they have some legal rights. But then there was the majority who were manumitted and just became subjects. No longer a slave, but never able to rise to the level of citizenship. And in fact, many who were manumitted still remain dependent upon their former masters. They still stuck around and worked for them. And so only those at the top, the emperor himself, and then uh, nobles, senators, this equestrian, uh, these are all classes, only they would uh, have experienced anything like the sort of freedom and mobility that we in the West assume is an inalienable modern right. For the majority of the empire, the rest of the empire, reality was just shaped by one's location on uh, on uh, the hierarchy, and particularly one's location in a household and the character of whoever it was that was running the household and making the decisions. It's important to realize our modern belief in individual freedom and human rights is often really what informs our discomfort about discussions with Paul and slavery. And I, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. But it's, it's somewhat anachronistic of us to think those would have been the same concerns uh, and would have troubled the first hearers or readers of this letter. Because we know for generations after, it didn't. There is very little, if, in fact, there's really no widespread evidence that early Christians, or anyone for that matter, called for the abolition of slavery, the end of slavery. That said, many Christians, or sorry, many slaves were drawn to and were attracted to 
the early Christian movement. They joined the Christian movement. Slaves were everywhere in the Roman in Roman society. Uh, they estimate that about 35% of the population would have been enslaved and that 250,000 slaves were trafficked and sold in Rome alone annually. And if you're at all interested in finding out more about this, there is a difficult uh, but helpful small book uh, called Slavery as a Moral Problem in the Early Church and Today by Jennifer Glancy. She's a scholar that kind of works through this stuff. And so as we approach the Apostle Paul and his words on slavery, it's worth remembering that he is not the sole detractor of an otherwise burgeoning abolition movement. In fact, it would be 400 years before we have any record of anyone anywhere calling for the abolition of slavery. There's a Christian bishop in modern-day Turkey named Gregory of Nyssa. And then we still have to wait like 1,200, 1,300 years after him for anyone else to sort of pick up what he's putting down, to do anything with this movement. It took a long time for it to get traction. And so into this, into this reality of, of ancient slavery, Scott McKnight writes uh, in his Philemon commentary, the only way really that was available to alter the demeaning realities of slavery was to treat the slave as a human being, to create a culture where each person has integrity, respect, and equal standing. And so with that, I want to turn to Paul and slavery. Uh, and just as a reminder, Paul speaks of slavery literally or metaphorically in pretty much every letter he writes. Jesus is a, comes as a slave. Paul presents himself as a slave of Christ. He describes our relationship to Christ as being slaves. He speaks of our previous relationship to sin as being enslaved. He speaks of our desired relationship to righteousness as becoming slaves of righteousness. He tells Christians uh, in Galatians 5 they are to be slaves of one another, serve one another. Paul instructs slaves generally, but he also names slaves in particular. It, it sort of then it speaks to the reality that Paul was writing in the first century because slaves were everywhere at that time. But having surveyed some of the ancient world and the nature of slavery, it just is quite something, I think, that Paul employs the image as he does. I, I can't, I don't totally know what else to say about all of that. And it's also remarkable because Paul himself was a Jew. He was a particular type of Jew who believed that the God of Israel came in the person of Jesus, died and was resurrected and was now ruling and his kingdom was coming. He's a particular type of Jew, but to be a Jew, the story of the people of Israel is one of liberation, liberation from slavery. This is central to Paul. Uh, so it's quite something to me that he chooses this word. Now, as I said earlier, Paul does not outright condemn the institution as I sort of wished he did. But I want to see what he does, though, in regard to slavery. And the place I want to begin looking is 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. And you could summarize this whole section as living as you were called, living in the way you were called. And I think this is a complicated passage in many ways, but I think some of it is central to what Paul is doing. And I 
I've been really helped by a New Testament scholar, an Anglican priest named Esau Macaulay. He handles this passage uh, in a chapter just on slavery in the Bible in a very helpful book uh, with a very long subtitle. The book is called Reading While Black. It's a play off of Driving While Black. Um, but the subtitle is African American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Uh, and so I'm drawing on his chapter on slavery in the Bible, not just in Paul. It's, it's a very helpful read. Uh, he's a very good writer. He's a good scholar. Um, but we need to remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a small church in a city where we think a third of the population was enslaved. And so it's not much of a stretch to assume that many of those in this small church were themselves enslaved. This is a letter read to a mixed congregation, citizens, free people, slaves. And it's helpful for us, I think, to hear what Paul is saying in those terms. Because what sort of questions about life and faith and about following Christ might such a congregation ask? In particular, knowing what we know about the life of a slave, what sort of questions about the life of faith might arise for a Christian in a church like this who were themselves enslaved. What might they want to hear? And so here's where we'll we'll start reading. Um, First Corinthians, you know, I'm going to really just take a sip of water. And again, you could summarize Paul's message here as live where you were when you were called. I think it's easy to misunderstand. Maybe I've misunderstood it too. Uh, But here we go. First Corinthians 7, 18 to 24. If someone was circumcised when he uh, when called, he shouldn't try to reverse it. If someone wasn't circumcised when he was called, he shouldn't be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Not being circumcised is nothing. What matters is keeping God's commandment. Each person, each person, each person, should stay in the situation they were in when they were called. If you were a slave when you were called, don't let it bother you. But if you are actually able to be free, take advantage of the opportunity. Anyone who was a slave when they were called by the Lord has the status of being the Lord's free person. In the same way, anyone who was a free person when they were called is Christ's slave. You were bought and paid for. Don't become slaves of people. So then, brothers and sisters, each of you stay with God in the situation you were, you were in. When you were called. Now, I think it's easy enough to misunderstand Paul here. Uh, but I don't think what he's saying here is stay in your lane, keep your head down. I don't think this is an endorsement of slavery. Paul speaks directly of various statuses within the assembly. The circumcised, the uncircumcised, as well as those who were slaves. And after our passage, he jumps to other realities, being married, being single. His counsel is that if you were circumcised, don't somehow try to become uncircumcised. We will not be talking about whatever that process is during the question time. That one is off the table, uh, just because it's beyond, it's beyond me. Um, uh, and he says, if you are circumcised, don't go get circumcised. Stay where you are. Why might Paul say this? 
Remembering what we said earlier, Paul is convinced that God gives gifts. He extends grace without any regard to systems of worth that we might think qualify us for that grace. Circumcision and uncircumcision, the very things that those in the assembly and we know other Christian assemblies that Paul writes to, assumed being circumcised would qualify them for more grace. It makes them sort of a better Christian. Yet Paul speaks here unambiguously. These things are nothing. This is a wild thing for a Jew to say. He says a similar sounding thing to those who are enslaved in verse 21. But it's not identical. It's easy to misunderstand what he's doing here, I think. And again, it's important to imagine someone in this church who is enslaved. Someone with no legal means to challenge their master's behavior or demands. Someone with no familial, no legal or financial means to ever fight back or defend oneself. It is imaginable imaginable that they would think their status as a slave would disqualify them from the life of faith because it disqualified them from everything else that the broader culture was doing. Um, Being enslaved disqualifies us from everything. Can we still follow Christ as slaves? Macaulay attempts to get into the mind of a first century Corinthian slave. Isn't my ability to honor God and serve God profoundly compromised by the fact that I live the life of a slave? Isn't this especially the case when it pertains to living a life of sexual purity and integrity? Wouldn't I have better standing with God if only I were free? Paul's point here in saying, don't let it bother you, is not that the question of slavery is insignificant. He says, if you can get free, get free. He's saying something else, I think, something more pastoral. Aware that the abuse that one was, that was leveled at slaves, Paul's point is you're not morally culpable for the sins visit upon you by your master. You're not guilty and God does not love you any less if slavery makes it impossible to follow the commands of Christ fully. This is a pastoral response to a deeply imperfect scenario. And unlike his advice to those who are circumcised or uncircumcised, Paul tells slaves, if you can get your freedom, get it. Change your status. But if you can't, which is most likely the case, it's not impossible for you to follow Christ in a situation that you cannot control. Again, if you can change it, do it. Paul seems aware that slavery puts real limits upon the believer. Something is not right about this setup. And he goes on in verse 22. If anyone who was a slave when they were called by the Lord has the status, uh, or sorry, anyone, yeah, has the status of being the Lord's free person. In the same way, anyone who was a free person when they were called is Christ's slave. You were bought and paid for. Don't become slaves of other people. A slave in this sort of community does not need to be set free to find worth because in Christ they have already received it. Of course, again, if you can get free, get free, take it. But know that your worth is established because you have been called by God. And this sort of playing about 
Those who are enslaved is, are free. Those who are free are enslaved. Reminds me of what Paul says in Galatians three. You uh, Galatians five thirteen. You are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't let this freedom become an opportunity to indulge your selfish impulses, but become servants of one another. Freedom is to become servants of one another. And if we become servants of one another, slavery is done. It's undone. You can't. Slavery only works if one's a slave and one's not a slave. Barclay, again, creating and sustaining communities that cross cultural assumptions of our society is no easy task. And there is no simple formula for how to do so in the name of grace. Paul founded and supported communities where there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male or female. This did not mean the abolition of these categories, but it did require that the hierarchies of worth conveyed by them were undermined and that every identity was reoriented to the superior worth of knowing Christ. Working within a broken, dehumanizing reality, it would have been great if he said, let's burn this whole thing down. Uh, but, But he doesn't. He says something else. And he says something else that I think is is similar in the letter to Philemon, which we're going to look to now, a letter that McKnight says both intrigues and disturbs. And if it only intrigues and doesn't disturb, you're missing the point. And if it only disturbs and doesn't intrigue, you're also missing the point. And this is a mosaic uh, rendering of Onesimus, one of the characters, Philemon is the final writing of Paul we have in our in the New Testament. It's a little 335-word letter from Paul to a certain Philemon. That's where the name comes from. Who was, among other things, a leader in the church at Colossae, as well as a slave owner. This letter has been something of a canonical oddball, because it doesn't really have a big theology section in it. It's small, and it seems to be the private matter between a few individuals. But it's addressed to a church. It's it's read, it's to be read to a whole church. And it's easy enough to skip or to miss, especially if you have one of those Bibles where the pages stick together, you could just miss Philemon and have no idea it's there. And it's some there's been something I think things have changed in the last ten years, but there's a precedent for scholars, especially Protestant scholars of Paul, to do nothing with Philemon. Um, in fact, I looked at a book uh, on Paul's theology that's on the shelf in this room, and it has one reference to Philemon. That's all. It, it just makes one note on one page. Um, so it doesn't get a lot of attention. And I hope you all have read it recently. I meant to say something at lunch, and then I forgot because we had such a lovely conversation. Uh, but it was in the email update, so if anyone's watching and listening, hopefully they've read it. But real quick, the story behind the letter, as best we can piece it together, involves three main characters. Uh, there's a bunch of other people named, but there's three main characters. Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon. Onesimus, again, handy or useful, is a slave who has fled from his former master, Philemon. And he's incurred some sort of debt. Some speculate that he stole something on his way out. We just don't know. But somehow he's come in contact with Paul while Paul was in prison. Paul was often in prison. Uh, that's a good place to find Paul. You could count on him being in prison. And through this, Onesimus the slave has come to faith in Jesus. 
And now, he's being sent back. He's being sent back to his former master, Philemon. But he's not being sent back just as a slave. He's not being sent back in the same way that he was before. The work of Paul in this letter is to, to re-present uh, uh, Onesimus to Philemon. He's no longer a slave, Paul says. He's more than a slave. He is a dearly loved brother who is to be welcomed as a dear brother by Philemon and welcomed as though Onesimus was Paul himself. Now, how this played out, whether Philemon took Onesimus back, we don't really know. Uh, it's lost in history. There is an early church bishop named Onesimus. Um, uh, and, but I think it's, it's fair to, I think it's reasonable to assume that he did take him back if, I think that's probably the reason we still have the letter, uh, but we just don't know. And there's so much to say, I think, about this letter. I've really loved digging into it. But the way I want to get into this letter is through a particular word, oh, that I thought I had a PowerPoint of, but I don't. Uh, and that, that shows up at two significant points in this letter. And the word is koinonia. It's a deeply Pauline word. It shows up in a bunch of other places in his letters. If you're in church cultures, you're going to learn a few Greek words randomly. Koinonia is probably one of those words. Um, but it shows up in this little letter in two different forms. It shows up uh, first in verse 6 in an opening prayer where uh, he speaks about, Paul speaks to Philemon about his partnership in the faith, his koinonia in the faith. And then later, I, I think at the climax, the conclusion of this letter in verse 17, we find, uh, and it comes right with the first imperative of this letter, Paul says, if you consider me a partner, that partner is, is the koinonia root, he says, if you consider me a partner, welcome Onesimus as if you were welcoming me. And it's striking that the reality which uh, this partnership of Koinonia, uh, it represents Philemon's relationship to those who, ha- who share faith with him. It connects him to those who are in the faith. But now it also connects his relationship to Paul, and by extension, his relationship to Onesimus. And different translations kind of change, like translate this word differently, uh, and sometimes in a way that is slightly misleading. So the ESV uh, translate this as, as sharing, as communication, koinonia, because the idea is participation or sharing in something. So they present it as a sharing, but it's, it comes across as a verbal sharing. And uh, a scholar named uh, Marianne Mai Thompson, I don't have her up on a slide, in her wonderful commentary on Colossians and Philemon, says that the problem here is it, it, it misconstrues the Greek and Paul's point. He's not talking about sharing in the sense of telling others about one's faith, but rather about being joined by mutual participation in a greater reality, the reality of Christ. Koinonia. This idea. Sometimes it's spoken of as fellowship. It's a greater reality that plays out in relationships that binds people together. And it creates solidarity. This is how John Barclay translates it, and I like it. Solidarity. 
It's not just fellowship time. It's not just coffee and potluck. It's participation in the same reality, in the same cause and interdependence among those who hold a common faith. There's a solidarity between Philemon and those who have faith. But now, because Onesimus has become a son to Paul, this slave, this slave has become a brother, he's become Paul's own heart, is what Paul calls him at 1.2. The same reality, that same solidarity that existed between Philemon and Paul is extended from Philemon through Paul to Onesimus, his escaped slave. Onesimus is now a dearly loved brother. And this category or status of being a sibling in the solidarity of faith is placed above the category of slave. And by extension, the category of master must now be placed underneath the category um, of brother. Barclay says what matters about Onesimus, what gives him worth, is his status as a beloved brother, which is precisely what matters also about Philemon and gives him his worth. This solidarity mutually transforms their previously held identity. Within the solidarity of faith that is the Christian community, this siblingship, whatever status one might carry outside has no meaningful significance inside. They're brothers. Paul does not reinforce social status, but he doesn't negate it. He relativizes it. He makes it subordinate to the reality that now in Christ, they're siblings. And I wonder if Paul, like I wished he had done, if Paul insisted that all slaves, Christian slaves, seek manumission and instruct that all slaves be granted manumission, I wonder if it would suggest in the minds of first century Christians that slaves were, in fact, inferior. Uh, they might, might unexpectedly support the cultural assumption of a slave's inferiority and insignificance, that they first have to be free for them to receive grace. They first have to become free for them to enter this community. But in a radical move that is subversive of cultural assumptions, Onesimus had been born in Christ even while he carried no legal status, and he became a brother. Again, Paul's favorite word for this community This thing that koinonia creates is not church, is not people of God, is not fellowship, is not body. It's brothers and sisters. And perhaps what Paul is doing might become even clearer if we hear another ancient document that kind of has the same setup. Uh, Someone has escaped, a freed person has escaped, he's gone to someone else, and that someone else is writing a letter back to a master. So I'm going to read... Another ancient letter from this guy, Pliny, Pliny the Younger, to a certain Sabianius, Sabianius, and I'm just going to call him Sabi, because um, that's what all his friends called him in the ancient world. But it's an odd document in some way, but it parallels the same story that happens in Philemon. There's an escaped freedman who goes to Pliny and says, I've realized I've, there's some change of heart, and Pliny is sending him back. And it's it's an odd letter, but it's worth to listen for who's named. Whose names do we hear? What is the rationale for this kindness of receiving him back? And is there any change to social status whatsoever? So again, this is Pliny writing, Pliny the Younger in particular, there's also Pliny the Elder, 
um, writing to Sabi. Uh, So he says this, You told me you had been angry with a freeman of yours, and now he's come to see me. He threw himself at my feet and clung on to me as though I were you. He wept a lot, he asked for a lot, though he kept quiet about a lot too. To sum it up, he made me believe that he was genuinely sorry. I think he's a changed character. He really does feel that he did wrong. Look, I know you're angry, and I know that you have the right to be angry, but mercy earns most praise when anger is fully justified. Once you loved this guy, and I hope you will love him again. For the moment, it's enough if you let yourself be placated. You can always be angry again if he deserves it, and you'll have all the more reason if you've been placated now. He's young, he's in tears, but you have a kind heart. Make that count. Don't torture him, and don't torture yourself either. Anger is always torture for a soft heart like yours. I'm afraid it will look as though I'm putting pressure on you, not simply making a request. If I join my prayers to his, but I'm going to do it anyway, and all the more fully and thoroughly because I've given him a sharp and severe talking to, and I've warned him clearly that I won't make such a request again. This was because he needed a good fright, and I said it to him rather than to you, because it's just possible that I shall make another request and receive it too, always supposing it's an appropriate thing for me to ask and for you to grant. Yours sincerely, Pliny. Now, there's plenty of things that you could say about this letter from Pliny to Sabianus, and you can see how it parallels what's going on with Philemon, uh, Paul, and Onesimus. But there's a few differences. In this letter, for one, we never hear the name of the escaped slave. As countless others throughout history, he's unknown to us. Not so with Onesimus. Onesimus is named as a brother, not only in Philemon, he also shows up in Colossians 4, where he is considered a faithful brother and a trusted associate of Paul. The other thing, Pliny appeals uh, primarily to Sabi's pride. The letter is primarily about him and his character. It's different. It's very different in the letter to Philemon. Philemon is a person a brother and a sibling who's been bound to Paul, Philemon, and to all the faithful through this koinonia, the solidarity that's created among siblings in faith. But the thing I think is most telling is that the social hierarchy in this letter remains untouched and unchallenged. Where they all began at the beginning of the letter, Pliny at the top, Sabianus sort of below him, and the unnamed slave at the bottom, is where they all are at the end of the letter. The established social system is only reinforced. Yet in Philemon, Paul, who would be at the top, lowers himself. He introduces himself, unusually in the letter to Philemon, as a prisoner. So he's getting as low as he can. And likewise, Philemon, the slave master, must move down a rung in order to become Onesimus' brother and to treat him with love. All the while, Onesimus, the slave, is pulled up. His true identity is one who is no longer a slave, but a brother, and and a son, and Paul's very heart. It's worth remembering that in Roman law, slaves had no kin. Uh, 
They had no family. But here he does. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, he writes uh, that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ by not counting people's sins against them. He, was tr- he has trusted us with this message of reconciliation. N.T. Wright summarizes Philemon by saying, Here, God, through Paul, is reconciling Onesimus to Philemon. It's almost like he's wrapping his arms around one, wrapping his arms around the other, and bringing them together. And so why Philemon will probably remain an underappreciated part of the New Testament, imagine, for just a moment, if this was the only letter of Paul's that survived or if this was the only document of the early church that we still had. Among all the things that would be completely complete mysteries to us about early Christianity, what they believed, what they did, who Jesus was, we would know so little. But we would have to admit that something truly remarkable, something unprecedented, occurred in this small community. A radical reconfiguration of social norms. And against all expectations, a statusless, formerly useless slave was transformed into a dearly loved brother. Uh, Earlier, I named my disappointment with the absence of an outright condemnation of the institution or a call for abolition in Paul's letters. Knowing what Paul's vision was about these communities of of folks from different statuses that cut across all norms of social worth, social capital, people who received the gift, I wonder if Paul would likewise be disappointed in me uh, and be, be in the way that I reinforce those systems of worth often. And if he would be disappointed that his vision of the church as a community of siblings still hasn't happened. And there's so much more to say about slavery and Paul. We can talk about it. Uh, But I want to end by admitting that I've presented uh, neither the only nor the dominant way in which Paul was interpreted. And this is especially true in slave societies such as our own was for many years. Uh, And even sort of the interpretive history of Philemon in particular, is quite quite terrible. Um, the Fugitive Slave Act in the United States of 1850 uh, not only gave legal precedent for American slave owners from the South to come to the North and capture their runaway or escaped slaves, it mandated that every citizen was to assist in capturing runaway slaves. And it was said that this more or less, this, this act made all American citizens become slave catchers. And one of the justifications of this horrible, horrible legislation was scripture. It was Paul's letter to Philemon. If Paul returned Onesimus to Philemon, maybe we should do the same thing too. So you can imagine, for any of those captured African-American escaped slaves, of course Paul was not much of a friend. But as we name the evil of a dominant reading of Paul in our country's history, we uh, we also must remember uh, this was not the only reading of Paul in our country's history. And the sort of pro-slavery take on Paul 
that was behind something like the Runaway Slave Act, the Fugitive Slave Act, has led many to dismiss Paul completely. But somehow it implicitly agrees with the master's minister that Nancy Ambrose uh, recounted to Howard Thurman, that somehow his reading of Paul is right, that Paul really is for this. But that is not the only, nor the necessary, nor even the best way, I think, to read Paul. Um, I think it's just deeply wrong. Um, But it was also challenged by those who themselves were once slaves. So I want to end with a response from a famous American abolitionist, Frederick Douglass, who found much inspiration uh, in the writings of Paul, and who was often quoted 1 Timothy 1.10 that stated that, that stealing humans, that trafficking, is against sound doctrine. Uh, so he used Paul against these other readings of Paul. But I want to end with his words. Um, this comes from uh, a, a wonderful book that gives a lot of other reads of Paul. It's called African American Readings of Paul. It's by a scholar named Lisa Bowens. She just walks through how Paul was in many ways very much a friend to many enslaved Americans who saw something else in Paul besides the sort of exegesis of the master's minister. He saw there was something else going on. And so this comes from a speech given um, actually in Ireland, in Belfast by Frederick Douglass, called Baptists, Congregationalists, the Free Church, and Slavery. Uh, And he says this. The Constitution is pro-slavery because men have interpreted it to be pro-slavery and practice upon it as if it were pro-slavery. The very same thing, sir, might be said of the Bible itself. From the United States, men have interpreted the Bible against liberty. They have declared that Paul's epistle to Philemon is full proof for the enactment of the hell-black fugitive slave bill, which has decimated my people for the last ten years in that country. They have declared that the Bible sanctions slavery. What do we do in such a case? What do you do when you are told by the slaveholders of America that the Bible sanctions slavery? Do you go and throw your Bible into the fire? Do you sing out no union with the Bible? Do you declare that a thing is bad because it has been misused, abused, and made bad use of? Do you throw it away on that account? No. You press it to your bosom all the more closely. You read it all the more diligently, and you prove from its pages that it is on the side of liberty and not on the side of slavery. So I'm going to stop there, having talked for quite a long time. Um, and as I said, there are, well, there's lots of things in Paul and slavery that I, for another evening, another time, um, that I'm more than happy to talk about or other things. But if you have any questions, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to talk for a little while. Yes, Nate. Mm-hmm. So, I guess with Paul, the issue of slavery was so ubiquitous and so common, it seemed overwhelming to try to change what was involved. 
went with the second option of trying to see slaves as family, siblings, yep. and then encourage slave owners and slave slaves themselves to see each other as family as well. Yep. So I'm just trying to think of like, is there a, a sin or an evil in today's world that seems so ubiquitous, so common, so overwhelmingly powerful mm-hmm. that we don't have the means to change it at this point mm. in this generation, but can only make take steps towards it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, well, anyone else have any thoughts on that before? Um, or anyone, if any, I don't know if anyone's watching, but uh, thoughts on, yeah, something that's similar in our world today that's so large that's um, impossible to sort of like tear down the system but are there ways to create alternatives um, that's your question right mm-hmm. yeah yeah you sort of implied slavery yeah, yeah. is still yeah. that thing yeah like in just how bound up our Yeah. It's sort of hard to think of a specific institution like slavery. I can't help thinking reading Philemon and thinking Paul would, would just given the implications of how he's dealing with the, with the Philemon that he sees the institution of slavery is totally inappropriate to to cope with the reality of Christian fellowship and, and the truth of who people are in, in the world not just Christian people as, as we thought of adoption but of being God's image so I mean the Civil War was what when they said we, we've got to stop it, or uh, the South actually said we, we've got to keep it, and and then uh, the North tried to save the Union, and Lincoln gradually concluded that it really was about slavery, it was about getting rid of slavery, but he hadn't didn't start the war that way, but. but uh, I don't think of another similar institution now that, uh, as an institution, needs to be ended. But we don't, we can't start doing it. No. Um, maybe I, maybe if we thought more. We could find something that's more analogous. Yeah. All sorts of things that need to be changed and challenged and so on. But hard to know whether we need to hold off. Mm-hmm. And we have to be sensitive and I mean, even mm-hmm. the abortion issue, some of our attempts to completely wipe it out have tripped us up in terms of our ability to limit it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, so we can go too fast and and, and uh, sabotage our own efforts. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you uh, yeah, Dave? 
Yeah, when it was backing up to Paul's time, there, there wasn't this idea of, hey, there's something going on, like some structure in society that if we just rally, we can change. You know, like we have more of a democracy now. I mean, back then it wasn't like a small group of Christians could even imagine bringing down slavery. Like I, I don't even think that could, that wouldn't have even been something to imagine possible even. Um, but then, I mean, I've also heard, like, the thing that you highlighted, to call a slave a brother, that's the seed that's going to eventually bring down slavery. It took a long time, but yeah. once you say that, then suddenly, yeah. eventually, um, it's, it's got to come down, and, and that's what we saw eventually. But, um, yeah, I guess it's just easy to read back, like, to put ourselves back there, but it was a very different time. It wasn't, uh, they didn't have the same means of changing things that we, we would be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe I just thought of, like, totalitarian regimes. Like, in yeah. In North Korea, like, there's a lot of evil and oppression going on under his rule, but... You know, it seems like people are just slowly trying to make inroads with them, whether it be South Korea or other people who have some type of relationship (coughs) to, like, slowly over time bring change or influence, even in the midst of all of the the pain and suffering that's been going on for years. Yeah. 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 Marty? Well, I just think of the way um, in our culture so many churches are monolithic in terms of race, social Mm -hmm. background, educational background. I mean, what was so radical in the the early church, which you talked about, um, and what's so clear in Paul's letters is that the status and social hierarchies were really broken down in the church. and Mm -hmm. I mean, not easily, but in a really radical way and our culture is we're so segregated in where we live and at least mm-hmm. I mean maybe this isn't as true in cities but you know you live with people or basically you're saying you're saying race your socioeconomic background your educational background and churches represent that mm-hmm. way too much and it just seems like that's a, that's a challenge in terms of do we really do we really live as if we're brothers and sisters with mm-hmm. other Christians who look different from us, who live in a different location? I mean, I, you know, I think there they talk about 11 o'clock on Sunday morning being the most segregated hour yeah. of the week. Yeah, yeah. And which in, in most places it probably is. And I mean, I just, I don't know. I think that's just the challenge of real community, real. Mm-hmm brother and sisterhood mm-hmm. across the statuses that still are very real mm-hmm. in our culture. Yeah. 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 Hmm. I mean, I think, yeah, I don't, I'm just, yeah, just sort of thinking. I mean, I don't, I do think there is something so different about slavery in the ancient world than the modern world, but I mean, I think you've got to be 
pretty ideologically sold to think capitalism, an unrestrained free market, has not really done any damage. (laughs) I I know it's brought tremendous wealth uh, to the world, um, but I think there are, and raised standards of living, you know, um, but it's, it's caused incredible environmental problems. They tend to disproportionately affect um, the poor around the world and it does for us here but I, I do think it also um, yeah it creates yeah it creates it tends it's also create I mean not that though they not as though they didn't exist before but it, it created um, a different sort of systems of worth that people are stuck in and feel they can't can't get out of I know there's the and it's a real, in a lot of ways, it's a real thing, though. In America, people can work their way up in some ways, but that's not the only story that's been mm-hmm. told in America or that is, is true of America. So I do think, I'd want it before I said any, I'm just sort of thinking out loud here. Um, but yeah, um, I don't have yeah. Anyone else have anything on that or on something different? Totally different. Yeah. This uh, respond to Marty's thought. I think if you look at like the underground church in China, you have like rich and poor worshiping together because like the church is marginalized there and they have no other option but to worship together. But in cultures like the U.S. where Christianity is the dominant religion, it's a lot easier to separate based on race and class because of the freedom that we have. Yeah. Yeah, Ben, did you want to? Just to, I know that you you, um, you said that you were talking about slavery in the Old Testament at all. Yeah. So this is, I know this is kind of out of um, maybe a little off topic. So, um, but just uh, I'm not even, so so. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to get back to that slide. I'm not going to. I don't know why I wanted to be on that really slide. Me, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to blind you with my PowerPoint so that uh, I could avoid a hard question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just, I'm just struck by reading the, the um, uh, and sort of Solomon's kingship after David, his father, dies. And uh, first Kings, you know, it's many, many years after the Exodus, but it's, you know, it's still, as you're reading your Bible, it's... Um, not too, not too long after Exodus, <laughs> and uh, and just the, the um, just the, the accounts of his building, his building campaigns and the temple, but also the palaces and all these houses and everything. Uh, and on many occasions, it talks about like, and then the forced labor did this, and mm. he appointed so and so as the head of forced labor, and mm. just this many thousands of slaves mm-hmm. did this construction project and. And uh, very similar to the extra biblical accounts of, of what Pharaoh was doing, you know, he had a, a massive building campaign mm-hmm. and, and um, was building all these palaces and things, and, and uh, Israelites were enslaved to do that. And um, in the book of First Kings, there's zero commentary as to whether this was, there's anything wrong with this or not. Yeah. It's just stated. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Yeah, it just makes me wonder. Like, <laughs> I could see as a, 
as someone just opening the Bible and doesn't really know much about this story, say, wow, this God is, is all about favoritism, because I guess he only objects to slavery when it's his chosen people, mm-hmm. but as soon as they get in power, they build this kingdom on the backs of slave labor. <laughs> yeah. What's the... I guess that's just my question. Like, what do we do? What do we do with that? Yeah. Do we read some of the th- things that Paul says, and read read backwards in the Old Testament, and say that you know this is really um, an unrighteous thing? Did Solomon really need an extra palace? You know, <laughs> whatever. I don't know. I just yeah. I would appreciate any thoughts you have on that. Yeah, I mean. <clears throat> um, yeah, in in sort of reading and thinking about this, I hadn't thought about slavery in first first Kings like that. And I mean, there is, I mean, because like I have, yeah, I have, I even like printed out a page of notes that says OT at the top in case anyone asked about yeah. Old Testament stuff. I have other pages, <laughs> other things, but yeah, I mean, there is a deep. Um, Irony isn't quite, I mean, it's just sad mm-hmm. that um, these people have been freed and then freed from slavery and then they enslave others. And mm-hmm. there, I mean, in the Old Testament law, there is, um, <clears throat> there is, uh, there's plenty of, of, of laws around yeah. slavery, um, both for Israelite slaves or foreign slaves. And, yeah, I mean, I do think there is, um, the way I make, I at least make sense of that, um, is like, um, kind of thinking about when Jesus is confronted about divorce and he goes back to, he goes back to Genesis, you know, and then more or less says most, what, and, and, you know, this was not the intention that there's some intention, that God has an intention, but that what Moses gives you is because of the hardness of your heart. Like, there's a concession, and that the Old Testament law has lots of accommodation, you know, leading leading up. Um, but there, yeah, there... Um, and I, I mean, I can speak about some of what those laws are, mm-hmm. uh, but there is just this sense of like, oh, guys, seriously, like, this is... Like this is what <laughs> this is what you're gonna do, but I think some of it was the reality of of the ancient world, and um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. Is that yeah? I, yeah, I don't yeah, know those I, are... yeah, I know there's yeah. I, I guess do we do we just do we read it in the same way that we read Paul's unwilling or or just lack of condemnation for slavery as an institution? Mm-hmm. And just say it was just part of how things got done yeah. back then. But did anybody build palaces and temples with paid labor? I have no idea. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, we didn't build. Did. We didn't build the White House with right. paid labor, so it's not right. like we. Uh, right. But I mean, I'll just look. I'll just point out some of the things that, like that, um, like in Deuteronomy 15, it starts with Israelite. Labor and no Jewish no Jewish person can be enslaved for more uh, than seven years, and they have to be released then. And when you release them, you have to give them. You can't release them destitute. You have to provide for them so that they can go on to something. Um, 
And there's a like a theological rationale there because Israel was enslaved as well in Deuteronomy 15. Um, uh, they were enslaved. God has freed them from slavery. So when this happens, uh, when and I think part of the understanding is if folks need to need don't have any like it's almost like a safety net, yeah. like it's something they can fall back on. Um, in some ways, but there are different laws then for foreign slaves. Uh, foreign, like foreigners, could be enslaved permanently in Israel. Uh, it's never like commended, but it is allowed. Um, uh, and, but there are laws about treating those foreign slaves. So in Exodus twenty-one, um, uh, twenty-one and twenty to twenty-six talks about how you treat a slave. If you injured a slave, so if you knock their tooth out or gave them a black eye, they go free. So like immediately even like if if there was some like theonomy approach to slavery in race-based sh- chattel slavery in the US, it's biblical. The second you punch, you give them a black eye, the second you knock a tooth out, they're free to go. Like they they you you can't treat them that way. Um and in Exodus, yeah, in the same chapter in verse 20, if you kill a slave, the punishment for the master is death. There's sometimes it's translated uh, differently. I did some reading on this. The language is often the, the master is punished, but everywhere else that word is used in the Old Testament, it's death. So even a foreign slave, I think, is recognized as an image bearer and yeah. needs to be be treated that way. Um, so the Bible allows for slavery, but you just can't do whatever you want. Uh, to your slave. And then, but then in Deuteronomy 23, if a foreign slave flees into Israel, mm-hmm. you don't return them. Yep. Like they can stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you free them and you let them stay. Whether or not that happened, right. I don't, I don't totally know. Uh, but they're not, they're not second class, um, citizens. Um, and so it was, it was a reality that was there. It wasn't, you could choose, especially for an Israel, you could choose to, have it more than that period of time. Like, it could go longer, but it wasn't uh, supposed to be. So I think the laws <coughs> uh, mitigate it, um, though never call call for an end of it. And, um, yeah, I mean, the majority of slaves in the ancient world were captives from warfare. Uh, but, you know, Israel wasn't supposed to go on big offensive. Uh, yeah, after they received the promised land. So... Um, yeah, um, so those are just some of the, like, yeah, some of the things. I don't know if that totally, I doesn't, it doesn't answer totally, but. I mean, similar to Paul's words about, like, um, masters remember that you're, you're, you have a master in heaven. Those, um, those slave laws, I'm sure, would have been completely off the wall in the, in the context of ancient Near East. Yeah. Like, yeah. In terms of what, in terms of the value of the slave that they all employ. Yeah. Even if slavery is abolished, it's still, um, ser- like, pretty seriously curtailed in terms of what a master can do. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, and I mean, um, yeah, it just still goes at like like um uh yeah, anyway, yeah. Dick you were gonna say yeah, something about sure. it? I've been reading Ian Proven's commentary on uh, on First Kings 
And he sees that, in other words, biblical narratives often tell a story and there's no, God said this was wrong. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It just tells the story of awful things happening and it just keeps on going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he isolates a lot of that. Pat- I think there's a couple of passages, a couple of chapters, which talk about nothing but Solomon building himself great palaces yeah. and all his wives great palaces. Yeah. And so, and he, he sees it as, is, is in the shape of a narrative exposing the, the superficiality and selfishness of Solomon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In other words, he, he doesn't see it as, as a, as a value-free, uh, kind of a neutral presentation of this, right. of this story. Then, of course, immediately later, the next generation uh, said, all you need to do is to, is to stop, is to stop uh, uh, doing so much forced labor, and then you'll be for, for his son. And, and uh, he, of course, goes to his younger friends and says, no, be tougher with them. And it blows the whole kingdom apart. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the story is told of, yeah. of a tremendous the abuse of slavery producing a divided nation yeah. that never was healed. Yeah. So it's, it's a, there's a lot, I think, in the narrative yeah. that says, yeah. God, this is the way, sort of the way um, with multiple wives shows mm. how you can really make a mess of children mm. <laughs> to have lots of yeah. wives. Yeah. Yeah. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that this is one of the main narratives in Genesis is, is how you can really screw up children mm. and uh, have total intra-family chaos yeah, if you have lots of wives. Just to add on to that, I think the minority report that the Old Testament is is anything but flattering to the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. They just mm-hmm. continue to highlight how they fail and fail and fail. And even, even in regards to Solomon, I think there's, if I remember correctly, there's laws specifically saying do not gather chariots and do not mm-hmm. gather mm-hmm. wives for yourselves. And then Solomon, almost word for word, he gathers wives for himself. Mm-hmm. He, he flexed chariots. Yeah. Like the the con- the similarities between Pharaoh and Solomon are almost like like you said they're mm-hmm. too too similar to ignore. Mm-hmm. The authors must have been. It seems to me they're aware of it. They're pointing it out. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're they're, they're highlighting it. Yeah. Um, and then just the in the creation narratives, how radical the image of God, every every human being being made the image of God was. Like, yeah. It's not just the kings. It's not just the, the, the noble people. It's every human being, and I think we should see. I mean, especially given the Exodus story, that slavery, like, there, there's, we should feel uncomfortable with it. I think the the authors, to me at least, it seems like they're pointing it out, and it's just, it's just like so. There's a there's a tension all throughout the Old Testament that I think. Mm-hmm. Anyone else have anything? Yeah, Dave? Well, yeah, just with that, like the accommodation in the Old Testament with slavery, it's good to see that compared to the other cultures of that time, Israel was yeah. exceptional. Like the, the slavery laws they had, the way they cared for slaves, yeah. was markedly different different than the surrounding culture. So it was actually a movement 
in the right direction, like mm. direction towards treating everybody as mm-hmm. the image of God. Yeah. And then you see the New Testament go even further, I think. Yeah. And that's, I think, because yeah, if we read back, we're like, wait, wait, this should be, they should be way more opposed. But they were opposed, you know, to mm-hmm. the degree probably they could at that time without mm-hmm. everything falling apart. Um, but I found that helpful to hear. Yeah. If, if you were a slave, there was no better place to be than Israel. Yeah. In the ancient Near East. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I often talk about the book Slave, Women, and Homosexuals mm-hmm. here, which talks about, like, yeah, the better, the differential movement of Israel when you like, rebuild settlement in the ancient Near East for women and slaves. Um, and I find some comfort in that. I think it's still uncomfortable. Um, like why? Why not just? Why not just abolish it? Why not? Just, whatever. Why not speak against polygamy? Why not like see women? I don't know. Anyway, but I think part of me also like really feels something about the human authorship of the Bible um, here. Um, in that, like, just maybe this concept was so far beyond the imagination. And like the only way to accomplish was to like make these differential movements, um, because even when God is like speaking to people in dreams and visions, and even when He's speaking in parables and all these things, He's like using metaphors on earth and like objects on mm-hmm. earth, like things that are known, like famine, and feast, and all these different things. And I think you have been slaves and everyone around you has slaves and this is just as ubiquitous as like Nate was talking about. It's like the ability to see a slave as a person to believe that the image of God applies to them it like might be so far beyond imagination. Like mm-hmm. if I if someone was to tell me like a you know like an like a can of soda Coca-Cola. Well it's the image of God, you know, like that would be so far beyond my imagination. Yeah, I just think like there's something in human authorship, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe what? Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, and there's, I mean, I don't want to say like one. I mean, even though, like I, yeah, like I said, I wish Paul was just like, yeah, let's burn this thing down, like let's, you know, do it, like. I, I agree with that. Like, he does still ask something that's incredibly hard. And, like, in a way, like, to to welcome someone as a, as a brother um, who was your slave. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's something, it, it's so relational. It's so, like, it's a, it's a reality that they're all implicated in, you know? It's, it's like, it's such a hard thing. Um, and yeah, I still, like I said, I think a bunch of times, I wish it was just, you know, like, you know, but it's not, but what he does call for, what he does ask still hasn't happened, um, at least like in any sort of pervasive (laughs) way. Um, and, um, but I mean, neither I mean, slavery has been abolished legally in America. It's not as though it doesn't exist in America. Um, I mean, yeah, as I started reading, like, about some of this stuff, like, if you want to fight slavery, 
I mean, they talked a lot about technology. They talked a lot about porn. Uh, they talked about food. Uh, fishing in Thailand is this huge enslaved thing. So it's, yeah, it's just, I think in a sense, it's, it's pervasiveness is still, like, hidden from us. And it's not the same sort of institution that I think it was, obviously, in in Rome, because the world is really different. But, yeah, still what Paul asks for or calls for um, I thought I had it in here, but I guess I, I, um, I think I took it out. But there's, there's four, there's like four imperatives in Philemon. Um, and they just, they're all, I just, uh, let me just find them real quick. Don't want to skip it. It's very easy to skip. Um, Philemon. Yeah, but he says, if you consider me a partner, welcome Onesimus back, as if you were welcoming me. So that's the first one, welcome. If he has harmed you in any way or owes you any money, charge it to my account. So welcome, charge it to my account. I, Paul, will pay it back to you. I'm writing this with my own hand, of course. I won't mention that you owe me your life. He says, uh, yes, brother. Yeah, I know. His rhetoric in this is... is, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then he says, I want this favor from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So the imperatives are welcome, Onesimus. Charge me for what wrong he's done to you. This will refresh my heart. And then the last thing he says is prepare a guest room. Uh, cause I'm coming, which I think is also rhetorically pretty powerful. He's like, just in case, uh, I'm just, you know, just to follow up on how things are going, I happen to come or I have, I happen to be passing through town. So, um, but I love, like, they're all, they are all relational. Like they're all like to welcome, to welcome Onesimus, charge it to me, um, and refresh my heart and prepare a guest room. I have a pretty uncynical read of Paul's rhetoric in this letter. Like, I think if Paul wanted, Paul was not afraid to just say what he wanted. Like, he's a pretty direct, if not abrasive, apostle. And I think when he, I think he means these things, even though it does, the rhetoric does do some, uh, some, some impressive work. But yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I'm just sort of rambling. But uh, yeah, Matt, did you have your hand up for a second? Or yeah. I like- just a couple different thoughts. I, I think it's so interesting that, uh, like, so I think of slavery and I think of um, abuse of another person, right? He's made in God's image. And then you had all that language that you rattled off about how we slaves to Christ, he slaves yeah. one another, and how, like, the difference between choosing to serve someone and then being enslaved to someone is, seems like then could be maybe more of a fine line in some cases than we think because I feel like chattel slavery is just the natural outpouring of what's what's already happening like you guys said there is slavery happening it's just not legal like the condition like we talked about at lunch the condition of the the human the human heart is one of sin and so that makes nothing but sense to me that like there would be slavery and that God's going to switch that to like voluntary servanthood you know one to another and just how beautiful it is like what God does with something that we've twisted so much from because I'm like curious like we talk about it's such a bad thing it's such a bad thing but like Paul's using all these positive ways right like God's so 
crazy to take something we think is so bad yeah. and, and still um, yeah. use that language. Um, yeah. Like, I think of the divine dance, is that somewhat like, like, that serving mm. each other voluntarily? Is it like mm. a voluntary slavery, maybe? Yeah. I don't know, I'm just... It it's make, really interesting. It, yeah. make, it makes me think, just what you were saying, makes me think about um, in Philippians 2, uh, where Paul talks about Christ, though he existed in the form of, of God, he emptied himself, taking on the, um, taking on the form of a slave. Mm-hmm. Um, and he submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. Mm-hmm. Like the two most shame, like, yeah, reading about crucifixion, and that crucifixion is not... A, a, an execution that's designed to inflict the most pain it's the uh, one to inflict the most shame yeah. uh, and to basically like what yeah basically say you're not a human mm-hmm. um, uh, you don't really exist and yeah there is so, there's this I mean Paul is full of paradoxes you know Sarah's lectured on paradoxes earlier like when I am I am weak then I am strong like Paul just has these things about that are just he just holds up right next to each other that make seemingly make no no sense that we're free in Christ but we're slaves to one another mm-hmm. and yeah it it's a I think it's I mean I still find it offensive to my like modern sensibilities and I think it was deeply offensive to ancient sensibilities as well but I think he has been so. Uh, captivated by by Christ, and just none of those things matter to him, and mm-hmm. he's tasted something more, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, so yeah, I like Paul. <laughs> I didn't always. <laughs> just one one thought, I guess that. Um, and just not a particular you know, chapter and verse that's coming to mind right now, but just the phenomenon of idolatry, that the human beings are, are created to worship things. We're create, we basically make slaves of ourselves to someone mm-hmm. or something, no matter what. It's yeah, Bob Dylan, right? You got to serve somebody. Yeah, yeah. Well, right, yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and so the language of being a slave to Christ it's not so much like is a way in which that I feel like that that phrase can be <laughs> I don't know take on more of a positive connotation for me um, because you're going to be you actually are a slave to something right now hmm. you know like the question the question isn't like are you not going to be a slave the question is who's going to be your master <laughs> Yeah. You're gonna pick a master who actually uh, to serve him is actually freedom. It's actually yeah. like being brought into um, how you were meant, how you were created yeah, yeah, to be, yeah. Uh, yeah. and that's yeah. I think the option of being totally free versus being a slave to something is that's not an option that's really ours. Yeah, it's like you're gonna be serving. Yeah. You're serving something. But why in the world would we not serve the God who made us and mm-hmm. actually wants us to be free? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah. Um, and why wouldn't you want to be a slave to that God? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, just, yeah. You know, just yeah. 
Well, thank you all for coming out. Yeah. Yeah.